I want to uh, tell you guys a story. I was in Bible college at the time. And my friend Nate Massey, who many of you know, was working a part-time job so that he could afford to eat and afford to get slushies with me before we went disc golfing. And sometimes after class or work, I would swing by his job and just hang out with him while he was there. Um, It happened enough that I got to know the people who worked with him. And there was this one guy who worked with Nate. I don't even remember his name. Uh, But he was loud. And he talked a lot. Okay? He, He was not afraid to share his opinion. You won't believe the kind of gossip, curse words, altogether other kinds of profane things that this guy would just say out loud. You know, in the, in the middle of this work environment. And so one day, much to my surprise, this guy starts to go on a tirade about how his church was thinking about moving the altar at the front of their sanctuary. Just, I mean, if anybody touches my altar, I'm going to... And I'm just like, oh my goodness. I'm like... I mean, he wouldn't stop. He just kept going and going for minutes. Like 10 minutes, he just was angrily ranting about someone moving his altar. I think he knew, well, he knew that Nate and I were Bible college students. And so maybe he thought that we'd like be on a side. We'd be like, oh yeah, no one can move the altar. You know, like we can, maybe, I don't know. But just for some context here, I'm pretty sure this guy had mentioned that it was a Southern Baptist church. All right? And nothing against Southern Baptists, uh, nothing against... Uh, that church at all, but this particular individual did not seem to be living out his life in, in correspondence with the faith that he claimed to have, at least not that I could see. And one of the common characteristics of Southern Baptist churches, and many churches in this case, are an altar. And you may have never seen one of these before, but this is about what it looks like, right? This is an, this is in a Baptist church right here. So it's this table at the front, usually an ornate table. Sometimes it's like the one we use for communion. It says, in remembrance of me. You know, uh, sometimes communion is served off this table. It usually has candles, sometimes a cross, very nice tablecloth, and usually a big KJV Bible that looks like it was printed when Martin Luther was alive. Just like, this this is it, all right? A very common staple at the front of some churches, and especially in the Baptist Convention. And this guy latched onto it, right? And if you've ever heard of an altar call, this is where it comes from, by the way. You know, this would symbolize kind of this place of sacrifice. So when someone would accept Jesus, they'd come up to the altar and lay their life down. I mean, and it's not, I'm not against them at all. But it's not like the altar in the Old Testament which was like the literal place of sacrifice. Anyway, this guy was complaining about someone talking about changing the altar in some way or moving. I can't exactly remember. But what, what I remember is that at the time I thought, this is his sacred cow, all right? And most, church, most churches have a sacred cow. And a sacred cow are these special things that are traditional, not biblical, and under no circumstance... Is it allowed to be touched or changed? All right? Everybody has sacred cows at their church. And it's not a bad thing. I'm not saying just because you value a tradition that it's bad. 
I'm just saying that we have these things that we value that aren't necessarily biblical. And the altar, in this case, is one of them. And I assume he inherited this from his church culture when he grew up. Maybe his parents, maybe his pastor put a really strong emphasis on this altar. And as he was sitting there, cursing out the people who would think about moving this altar at his church, it just, all I could think in my head, I didn't say it out loud, but all I could think in my head was, how do you even have the right to be upset about this? Right? I am almost certain he had not attended church in a very long time. And he, at best, at best, his church attendance was spotty. And he probably didn't even hear about this firsthand. He probably heard about it from someone else. You know, mom probably called him and was like, did you know they're going to move the altar or something? But he was just complaining about it. And I tell you this story to introduce you to a new series we're talking about today called Sacred. And the word sacred is synonymous with holy or set apart. And when something is sacred, it means that it needs to be honored and revered and taken care of with the utmost love. And thinking about this guy being upset about this altar made me realize something. Is that in the church, maybe our sacred priorities are misplaced. I wonder, would this guy have been more upset at his pastor having an affair or his altar being moved? Would he be more upset if his church had a theological division? Would a great tragedy that struck one of the members of the church pull on his heart and elicit such a passionate reaction as a table being moved? And perhaps the church closing altogether wouldn't have even bothered him as much. And he's not the only one who has the sacredness for the church that is missing. Because I know I do it too. And when I was, the reason we're talking about this today is I was on the way back from Indiana with Madison and Isaac and uh, Amber. We went to go visit some family. And Isaac, we were just talking. Isaac's like, if you could change one thing about the modern church, what would it be? And I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, that's a big question. I don't even know where to start. But we started talking. One thing led to another. And I'm pretty sure it was Amber who said, I think we miss the sacredness of the church. Like, how special it is. And immediately I knew that's what we need to talk about. We need to talk about the sacredness of what we're doing here. Because I think it's really easy for us as a church to be focused on our programs and uh, the amount of people in the building and maybe we sprinkle in a few sacred cows here and there, right? But is that what church really is? No. Church is a sacred meeting of God's chosen people. And to start our discussion, to kind of get into this, we need to look at the tabernacle and subsequently the temple. So if you would go ahead and open up with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. And when I think of things that are holy or sacred uh, in the Bible, obviously God is at the top of that list, but the tabernacle and temple also extremely stick out to me. In case you're not familiar, the tabernacle is uh, the first holy or sacred building that God ever commands to be constructed in Scripture. All right, so after the Exodus, 
Israelites are enslaved. Moses leads them out, parts the Red Sea, all of that, the ten plagues. They're in the wilderness, and God says, I want you to build this altar, or excuse me, this tabernacle. And God describes it in excruciating detail. Okay, there are 40 chapters in Exodus. 13 of the chapters are dedicated, that's 32% of the entire book, is dedicated to describing the detail in the tabernacle, describing the specialized utensils and clothing for the priests. It describes the building and construction of the Ark of the Covenant, the collecting of the proper resources, the blessing of the craftsmen, the building of the tabernacle, and finally the anointing and opening of the tabernacle. So obviously it's extremely important to God. The whole Exodus story takes up less room in the Exodus than the actual describing and building of the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle, in case you're unfamiliar, are two main chambers, right? So you have this courtyard around it, then you have this holy place, and then an even deeper inner room that's separated by a curtain called the Holy of Holies, or the Most Holy Place. And priests would enter the holy place all the time to do various kinds of sacrifices and offerings to God and rituals. And then the Holy of Holies, that upper part, the deep part of the holy place, was totally off limits to everyone, except for the highest priest once a year. He had to go through extreme uh, spiritual cleansing, an extreme amount of preparation to be able to go into that room and commune with God himself, to be in the, the deepest presence of God. And it was such a risky thing that they would actually tie a rope to the high priest's leg in case he couldn't get back out, if you know what I'm saying. God is so holy that if the priest didn't do everything right, he would just die because of God's presence. So it's just like the most intense concentration of holiness on this planet that had ever existed. And then the tabernacle eventually gets replaced by a temple, right? And Solomon, well, David makes the preparations and gets all the materials together, and Solomon puts it into place. And that's what we're going to be looking at in 1 Kings chapter 8. So Solomon, the king of Israel, uh, is in charge of building this permanent structure. It's not a tent anymore. It's going to be a temple made out of stone. And in this temple, it's just kind of crazy, there were 3,000 tons of gold. That's a lot of gold. There were 30,000 tons of silver. It used the finest cedar, the finest wood in the world that they knew of, the cedars of Lebanon. And he used these countless stones, perfectly crafted and placed, to build this thing. And altogether, this ornate and impressive building took seven years to build. Just like a monumental effort for the nation of Israel. And once everything was done, and once everything was in place, and it was ready to be dedicated and opened... That's what we read in 1 Kings chapter 8. So let's go ahead and look at this here. Then Solomon, starting in verse 1, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the leaders of the fathers' households and the sons of Israel to King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is in Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim which is the seventh month. Then all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. They brought up the ark of the Lord and the tent of meeting and all the holy utensils which were in the tent, and the priests and the Levites brought them up. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled to him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep 
and oxen that they cannot be counted or numbered. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place. That is, into the Holy of Holies, as we saw in the tabernacle, same place in the temple, into the inner sanctuary of the house, to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the ark, and the cherubim made a covering over the ark and its poles from above. But the poles were so long that the ends of the poles could not be seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, inner sanctuary could be seen, excuse me, but they could not be seen outside. And there they are to this day. And there was nothing in the ark except the two tablets of the stone, which Moses put there at Horeb. But the Lord made a covenant with the sons of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it happened. When the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud of the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So I just want you to imagine this scene. All right? The priests, the elders, thousands of people walking behind the Ark of the Covenant and the utensils and all the special things from the tabernacle, and they're walking into the temple. And they're sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that it literally cannot be counted. It can't, no one can keep track of what is going on. It's just this amazing worship experience. And the Ark is entering the Holy of Holies. And as the priests leave, as they walk out, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. Boom. No one can even be near it. There is so much glory there. There is so much of God's presence that they can't even continue to do what they were doing. Yahweh was there in an overwhelming kind of way. And this happened when the tabernacle opened too. And God's presence filled the tabernacle. It was, it, these are some of the most amazing records of the outpouring of God's presence in the Old Testament. And then this moment inspires Solomon to give a message in a prayer that lasts. Like if just flipped through the rest of chapter 8, look how long it is. Almost all of that is Solomon talking and praying. And this starts a 14-day feast of it, like the entire nation of Israel has this 14-day worship session where they're feasting and giving glory to God and sacrificing animals. All because this temple is so special. It is so holy. It is so sacred. And now, this is where God resides. This is where God has decided to be, to dwell. It is the possible closest connection that anyone could have with God is at the temple. And because of its sacredness, of its holiness, the nation of Israel protected and loved and honored this place. And it's really hard to put into perspective. It's really hard to get you to understand just really how important this temple was to them and how holy it was. It was the place where you could commune with God and be with God. It's the place you could point to and say, that is where God wants to be. That is where he has chosen to be. And of course, God's not confined to the room, the Holy of Holies, right? He's everywhere. We can talk to him even if we're not inside that temple, even the people in the Old Testament. And now we've spent 15 minutes and 45 seconds talking about nothing to do with the church. But we needed to get this background information so that when we read what's next, 
We have the full impact. We can feel the full weight of what is being said. Look here at the screen. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, 19 through 22. Oh, that's first Kings 8. Here we go. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and the saints, with the saints, and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. What we are in the midst of right now, at this second, is not about our programs. It's not about this new renovated space. It isn't about the music. It isn't about the message. It isn't about the number of people in the seats. It is about being a living temple for God's presence. He's here in us. We are the temple. You think it's crazy that God came down in 1 Kings chapter 8 and they could stop, they had to stop everything they're doing because God's presence was there. God's presence is here now in us. It's crazy (laughs) and it's amazing this is where God decided he wants to be we are the literal spiritual version of what we read in 1st Kings chapter 8 and instead of being able to point to a building and saying oh yeah that's where God has chosen to be we can point at each other We can point to the church and say, God is in us. He is moving and he's living today. This is where he wants his power. This is where we are supposed to spiritually sacrifice and worship him. And that is why the church is precious. That is why the church is sacred. So think about this. From Genesis, for thousands of years, God was planning and working through the nation of Israel and through hundreds of individuals so that he could create a perfect time and place for his son to be born into the world so that Jesus could live the sinless life, find faithful people, die on a cross for all sin, be resurrected three days later, glorified in immortality, so that a group of sinners who deserve nothing but death, could be formed into a holy and living temple for God. That is us. I mean, Amber makes birthday plans for me, but they don't go maybe more than a month out. God's been working on this for thousands of years. If you want to feel special, think about that. The creator of the universe put everything into place And sacrifice his only son so that you could be here today, a part of his family. 
And if you think it took a lot of work to build a temple in seven years, if you think it took a lot of work to renovate this lobby and do this in here, it's not even close to the amount of preparation and effort that God has put into saving his people. So realize to be a part of the church is to be a part of a family that God bought at the price of his only son. It is to be a part of a group that is planned since the foundation of the world. It is to be a chosen people that are pulled from the brokenness of sin to become a place of worship to the one true living God. And that is why the church is sacred. And I think a major problem with the church today is that sometimes we lose track of that sacredness. Right? It's not that the church becomes unsacred. It's that we just forget to realize that it is sacred. We forget to treat it with the respect that it deserves. And so what does that mean? It means that you treat the church with respect, which means that you treat the people of the church with respect. So I want to be clear, so we're on the same page. The church is not a physical building, right? If we all, right here, and we walked out the door to the parking lot, that's where the church is, right? So I'm not talking about this building. It could burn down tomorrow and the church wouldn't change. The church would still be its people. So the way that we treat the church with respect, and I think taking care of this property is a part of our responsibility. I'm not saying that's not. But the way that we treat the church with respect is to take care of each other, right? The church is this, this people. This is the temple that God is building together. It's, 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 it's weird, but it's always growing and it's always changing. The temple of God is not stagnant. It continues to move and grow. So if we gossip, if we fight, if we tear each other down, if we slander, if we divide... What you are doing is effectively chipping away at God's temple. Imagine walking in that day when Solomon's temple was inaugurated. And you take a sledgehammer and just smash a pillar. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you would be struck down right there. That's what you were doing when we turn against each other. And that's why so much of the New Testament is about unity and faith. Right? And another way that the temple is talked about, the church is talked about, is as Christ's body. And when one of us is hurting, we're all hurting. And when we build each other up, the body gets better as a whole. So there's this camaraderie in the church that we should feel. Because we are walking together in mission and unity. We are the living temple together. And I want us to really understand this, that that church is way more than just attending a service. Right? Let's think about everything we do regularly. We sing. We've done that today. We give of our time to come together. We pool our money to support different ministries. We listen to scripture preached. We fellowship. We eat snack. We have special studies. We take communion, and we pray together. And I think that pretty much covers everything we do. I'm sure I missed something, but that's pretty much it. Now, we can look at those things in two different ways. 
We can say that these are activities that are offered to me that I can participate in, right? Or we can look at it as saying, I am a collective part of this group, which together is worshiping God in all of these various ways. And together we are growing in faith and being a place for God to dwell. And those are two vastly different perspectives on what it means to be at church. Right? And we don't do these things every week. We don't come together and sing and worship because we have nothing else better to do on a Sunday morning. These are the types of things. The things that we do are the types of things that are meant to be done in a temple. Right? A temple is meant for sacrifice. It is meant for worship. It is meant for offering. It is meant to make a spiritual connection. So when we come together and we perform these things, it is a spiritual act of worship and love to God in his temple. So if we're just going through the motions on a Sunday morning, if our head is somewhere else, our heart is somewhere else, our our mind is not focused on what we're doing, our worship is dead, not just in the singing, but everything that we do. And if we're not here, then a part of God's temple is deficient. It is not working the way that it should be working. And this hit me really hard because I'm in charge of organizing stuff. And when I'm here on Sunday morning, I'm thinking, do I have the announcements right? Do I have my music for my guitar? You know, like, is the live stream going? You know, like, oh. all these different details are going through my head. And sometimes I forget what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Right? We need to get past the programming for programming's sake and realize we're doing it to worship. That's the real point. Lastly, you can't separate yourself from the church. Right? It's not like when you walk out of here, all of a sudden you're, you're free of the church responsibility. You're free of the templeness. It doesn't work that way. And I think sometimes we're a lot like Nate's co-worker. Right? Or somehow we've justified disconnecting what we say with what we do with our faith, with our actions, right? And this mentality is, is a pretty clear paradox that showed up in Nate's a co-worker that I watch, but I think it's something that we can be just as much a victim of, especially if we're not paying attention to it. So if you're a spiritual stone in a spiritual temple, which you are, you can't just pop out of the wall one day, right? And just go do your own thing and then hop right back in the temple whenever it's convenient for you. Right? You have been placed. There are stones on top of you and around you that are supported by you and that support you. You have a job and a purpose. You are vital to the spiritual temple. You fill a role that no one else can. And when you are outside of this meeting, when you're walking around in the world, you are continuing to be a representative of that temple of God, the holy place that he chooses to dwell. Which I think is one of the coolest things about the new covenant under Christ. The coolest thing about the church is that the temple used to be stationary, right? You used to have to go to Jerusalem if you wanted to see the temple. But now, temple on wheels. The temple can go wherever it wants. All it takes is a plane ticket, and the temple is in Malawi in 16 hours. Well, you have to go to Johannesburg first, and then you can go to Malawi, okay? 
The world is filled with God's temple and is moving and growing every single day. It is an amazing thing that God has put into place. And so when we come together as a group, we are worshiping and venerating God as his temple. And when we leave here, we are his temple showing the world who he is. So at the end of the day, the temple is a place for sacrifice and worship. But I want to ask, do we sacrificially worship? Do we sacrifice to make this a priority? Do we give of ourselves and our time to make sure the temple is taken care of? That's a question that only you can answer for yourself. And my goal for all of what has been said is so that we can readjust our perspective so we can see the importance of the holiness of God's church. It isn't just a gathering of people. It is a place where God has chosen to call home. So as a temple of the living God, please pray with me this morning. God, we thank you. We thank you for the miracle of being with us even now. I pray that you let your presence be felt and allow us to not lose track of why we're here. It is in the amazing and powerful name of your son that we pray. Amen.